Hey, what's up, commute listeners? This is Dan. So, it's summer, and we need a quick break. So, no new commute episode this week, but we are going to re-air one of our most popular episodes for you. Episode 50, JFK's Brain is Missing, The Amber Alert, and Under the Hood of Pimp My Ride. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Commute, and thanks as always for your support. Oh, and by the way, exciting news. We've actually been nominated for a podcast award. We are up for best podcast to listen to on your commute. Fitting, if I say so myself. More to come about that, but for now, we hope you enjoy a re-air of episode 50. JFK's Brain is Missing, The Amber Alert, and Under the Hood of Pimp My Ride. listening to commute the podcast congratulations you'll be smarter when you get there what up welcome to commute the podcast i'm Dave, and i'm jay and we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting and we're betting that you might just find them interesting too we can promise you this you'll be smarter when you get there on this edition of commute the assassination of John F. Kennedy has intrigued conspiracy theorists for decades, but there is one aspect of this decades-long mystery that definitely remains unsolved, and that is, what happened to his brain? Oh, I thought you were going to say, who was Zapruder? <laughs> Don't act like you know who Zapruder is, okay? You're talking to an expert. 26 years later, Amber Hagerman's murder has helped to solve countless cases and has saved the lives of over a thousand children. But Amber's case remains unsolved. In 2004, MTV debuted a show called Pimp My Ride, in which a crew took a broken down car and transformed it into a totally remade and over-the-top designer vehicle. But how close to the truth were these short episodes, and was there more going on behind the scenes? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, back in high school, I had to write a research paper. I think it was around my junior year, and it was the first research paper that I ever had to write. I saved it on a floppy disk, because I think the year was about 2005 or so. And the topic that I chose was the JFK assassination, because to me, it was this really interesting historical topic, and there was so much mystery surrounding it. And do you have uh, a level of interest in the JFK assassination? Yeah, yeah, I do for really two main reasons. Number one, when I was in sixth grade, we watched the Zapruder film, and you know me, Jay, I hate horror, blood, gore, whatever, especially (laughs) real blood and gore. It seems a little graphic for sixth grade. It was way too graphic for sixth grade, (laughs) and my sixth grade teacher, who was a great teacher, should be in jail. So that's number one. Number two, there was a great show a couple years ago called 112263, based on a Stephen King novel, Uh, and and the book talks about a time traveler, uh, played by James Franco, who tries to prevent the Kennedy assassination. Well, Dave, we don't know where JFK's brain is. It seems like something we would know where it is, but we don't. Why would it not be with his body? (laughs) Well, JFK's body is in Arlington National Cemetery today. With no brain. 
but it is completely brainless. So where did the brain go? Let's go back to the beginning because this mystery really starts on November 22nd, 1963, the day that Kennedy was assassinated. So after the shooting, Kennedy was immediately transported to Bethesda Naval Hospital in Washington, D.C. to sort of sort through this all. You know, it was still really chaotic right after the shooting and the autopsy determined that Kennedy had been shot twice. FBI agent Francis O'Neill Jr., who was present at the autopsy, reported that about half the brain was missing because of how much trauma the bullets had caused, and there really wasn't a whole lot of it left to work with. So working from reports from people who were there, it seems like at, at this point, the brain was put into a white jar and then into a stainless steel container and then moved to the National Archives. The autopsy report even notes that the brain is being preserved for further study. Now, Dave, this is where the trail goes cold, though. When someone tries to check in on the status of the brain, like, hey, remember the brain? Like, where is that? It's 1966, and the brain, the tissue slides, all the other materials from the autopsy, they're all just gone. So it's important to note at this point that there is not an answer to the question we're about to ask, which is what happened to it. We can theorize, but as of the taping of this podcast, JFK's brain is missing. So in conspiracy theory land... Theorists suggest that JFK's brain has some sort of damning evidence about his death, like maybe it could be used to prove that he was shot from more than one direction, like maybe from the front and the back instead of just the back. In fact, the doctors who studied JFK's brain at Parkland Hospital before the official autopsy wrote this in their findings, in the report, that they believed that JFK was shot from the front and the back. Now, others have different theories. James Swanson, the author of End of Days, The Assassination of John F. Kennedy, believes that Robert Kennedy, JFK's brother, is the real culprit behind the brain theft. Swanson theorizes that Robert Kennedy swiped his brother's brain in an effort to hide evidence of the extent of President Kennedy's illness or to get rid of any evidence of the number of medications that President Kennedy was taking. There's actually some truth to this, too. JFK had several health problems that he had successfully hidden from the public over the years, and he took a long list of medications, including painkillers, anti-anxiety agents, stimulants, sleeping pills, and hormones for his dangerous lack of adrenal function, according to Kalina Fraga at allthatsinteresting.com. Now, if this wasn't strange enough, Dave, it gets even weirder the deeper you go. So in 1998, A report from the Assassinations Record Review Board, which is a thing that exists, contended that (laughs) the photographs (laughs) they contended that the photographs of JFK's brain from the autopsy, get this, Dave, actually feature the wrong brain. Douglas Horn, the board's chief analyst of military records, and I'm quoting him here, says this. I am 90 to 95% certain that the photographs in the archives are not of President Kennedy's brain. If they aren't, that can only mean one thing, that there has been a cover-up of the medical evidence. Others who were actually present at the autopsy, including FBI agent O'Neill from earlier, reported that the brain in the photos does not match the brain that they remember from the autopsy. The report also uncovered all sorts of inconsistencies about who examined the brain and when they examined it and how the brain was sectioned and what photos were even taken. Now, will we ever get answers to this mystery? Probably not. But Dave, if you're looking for hope, there is a disclosure of Kennedy files from the White House that had been delayed due to COVID 
that is currently scheduled to release to the public in December of 2022. So mark your calendar. While you were talking, I googled JFK's brain. Not a good idea. Don't recommend it. (laughs) Pretty gross pictures. Uh, Sixth grade flashbacks. Flashbacks, PTSD, you name it. Really horrific things. Now, I'm going to say there's a picture of him. I don't know if I want to say that's kind of disrespectful. (laughs) It's been long enough. Like there's a there's a there's a date that's like if you've passed a certain amount of decades, like it's fair game. Well, I was gonna say there's a picture of him laying in the car after he got shot. And he looks like Michael Myers. <laughs> Very disrespectful. Yeah, maybe not. Jay, you and I, and the data would tell us most of the world have an interest in true crime. I mean, every time I log on to Netflix or Hulu, I feel like I see a new preview for the latest true crime documentary. Everything from disappearing nuns to stolen art. Now, Jay, I know you watch a lot of these, but the big difference between us is that you don't necessarily care, and I mean care in terms of you'll still watch it and be entertained by it if the crime is ever solved, while I personally can't stand to watch something that does not have an ending. Well, sometimes that's the hook is that it's not solved. And I'm not saying that like you can solve it, but I'm saying that like the live kind of like aspect of it sometimes can draw you in. So like a good example is like the podcast series Serial. Like what made Serial hook you was that the mystery was unsolved. And so people were kind of like trying to solve it in real time. Well, no. You know, no so, what, what hooked you was that you thought they were going to solve it as it went on because it was being produced <laughs> no, in live that's time. That's not true. Well, then we she got straight well, up then the we got hooked for, No, we got hooked for different <laughs> reasons then. And another great example of this, okay, is when you told me to watch Unsolved Mysteries, which I, of course, hated. But honestly, I can only blame myself because the title should have tipped me off. Unsolved. They don't yeah, solve any of them. Well, Jay, anyway, January 2022 marks the 26th anniversary of one of the most important unsolved true crime murder mysteries of all time. In fact, I think you could make a really compelling argument that it is the most important. And while its ending has not yet been written, its impact has changed the lives of families all over the world and will continue to do so well into the future. Jay, in January 1996, nine-year-old Amber Hagerman was snatched off of her pink bicycle in Arlington, Texas, by someone driving a black pickup truck. Unfortunately, Amber wasn't rescued, and her body was discovered four days later. Her killer was never caught. Now, obviously, Amber's kidnapping and murder sent shockwaves through the Texas community and well beyond the Texas border. One woman in particular, Diana Simone, took it especially hard. Now, Simone wasn't related to Amber Hagerman, but she was a mother. Jay, we're both parents. I'm sure you can totally understand this. I know that I definitely can. I know anything having to do with a kid, whether I know them or not, hits me so hard now that I'm a dad. But Jay, in 1996, Simone just couldn't shake it and knew she had to do something in response to this horrific crime. Simone wondered if there was a way to notify the public when a child like Amber was abducted. A community looking for a child had to be better than just a select group of people, right? 
I said, I can't get over this. There has to be something we can do, Simone told People magazine. There were weather and civil defense alerts, so why couldn't they do it for this? In the days that followed the murder of Amber Hagerman, Simone decided to put all of her effort into advocating for a change. She called a local Texas radio station with an idea. She proposed that an emergency system would be set up so that when a 911 call was placed about a missing child, that radio stations would interrupt their programming immediately to broadcast the alert out to the public. Simone followed that call to the station with a formal letter requesting that this system, a plan she started referring to as Amber's plan, be put into place. And Jay, just months later, in the same calendar year as Amber's murder, Amber's plan, which would later be renamed as the Amber Alert we all know today, was put into place. Today, Amber Alerts are used in all 50 states to notify the public of missing children, and they've saved nearly 1,100 children's lives. Without the people, without people caring and being willing to participate, I don't care how good of an idea it was, it wouldn't have gone anywhere, said Simone. It's the goodness in the hearts of people who care that are making the difference. But Jay, as I mentioned at the top, while Amber's abduction and subsequent murder have served as the catalyst to a system that has saved so many children, her own case still remains unsolved today. Despite the publicity of the case, publicity that has included over 7,000 tips through the years, and believe it or not, this case has never gone more than six months in the over 26 years since it occurred without a new tip coming in. So despite all of that, Law enforcement has never been able to nail down the killer. Things are changing, though. Advances in DNA testing have led to many high-profile arrests on cold cases over the last few years, and law enforcement still think they're getting closer to zeroing in on Amber's killer. The case has now shifted Jay from a maybe-never to a hopefully-soon. Regardless, and while I still hate unsolved cases, the Amber Hagerman case is the rare unsolved case that has changed the world, even without changing its status on the cold case shelf. And it's fascinating. So do, I don't know if you know this, but like, do they have DNA of the person who killed her and they just haven't been able to match it to anybody? Or is it just sort of like totally cold case? Yeah. So from what I could find, there are some very limited DNA samples that have never matched to anybody. And so that's kind of where the, the 23andMe and all these DNA testing sites that now exist, that's where all of that stuff comes into play. Because you're right, in 1996, if you had a DNA sample and it wasn't in the system anywhere, there was no chance of ever matching it. Well, now... Potentially, you can trace it somewhere. Yeah, I mean, partial DNA has like come miles and miles uh, since the 90s. So you really can prove uh, with partial DNA. And uh, like you said, I mean, there's been some, a lot of high-profile cases broken uh, through familial DNA. Like the Golden State Killer is a yep. good example. Like it's just because one of his family members was in the 23andMe system and they were able to narrow it down from there. So I think it gives a lot of hope for the future for cold cases like this one. So Dave, when you bring up MTV, you really can age somebody because I think like if you were in high school during like the 90s, for example, 
and somebody brings up MTV, your response is always like, well, that was back when MTV only played music videos. And then if you went to high school in like the 2000s, like we did, we kind of think of MTV like a little bit of music videos, but I kind of think about a lot of the reality shows that MTV had. Only on this show, by the way, can you go from the Amber Alert to pimp my ride. That's what makes <laughs> but, us us. But that's what makes us us, man. <laughs> but you're 100% right. When I think of MTV, I actually think of pimp my ride and cribs. So pimp my ride is what we're going to talk about, which is just like fantastic of a, of a premise. And, uh, and cribs, just, just FYI, cribs was they would go to a famous person's house and just walk around the house. Yeah, they, <laughs> they would just the like be like, I'm rich and you're poor. <laughs> you know, like that was the whole premise of the show. Here's my pool. Here's my other pool. <laughs> so Pimp My Ride, it was a show that premiered in 2004 on MTV. And the premise on the surface is pretty simple. A rapper named Exhibit would find a kid with a rundown end of life car that needed work. And he would go to work cooking up an absurd level of mostly ridiculous upgrades to improve the car beyond your wildest dreams. The official theme song, Dave, said it this way. So you want to be a player, but your wheels ain't fly. You got to hit us up and get a pimped out ride. So it seems simple on the whole, but behind the scenes, it was anything but. Uh, The Huffington Post reached out to a handful of former participants on the show who had previously done Ask Me Anything threads on Reddit about their experiences. Jake Glazer from season four, Seth Martino from season six, and Justin Derringer from season six. In Derringer's case, and Dave, for context here, Exhibit sort of took his car and made it into like a drive-in theater. It had like a pop-up champagne thing. It had a full theater screen capability. But Derringer reports that after the cameras went off, the crew actually took all of those items with them from the car. Now, producer Larry Hochberg responded to the Huffington Post, and He didn't deny this, saying that many times they took items that looked great on TV away due to safety concerns, like having a champagne contraption, for example, could be linked to drinking and driving. Seth Martino reports that his car really had quite a few issues after the show was over. Some LED lights, for example, that were installed in the seats would get like super hot, like dangerous levels of hot. Exhibit also installed a cotton candy machine in his car, one that really didn't work right. Like there was no dome on top, so the cotton candy just sort of went everywhere. Who wants who wants cotton candy that often, by the way? Like I I mean I want cotton candy maybe like once every five years. Well, I'm gonna give you some more context here in a second because the cars were always kind of themed. So just hang with me for a second. I'll tell you that there there is a logic behind the cotton candy. Still now uh, Now, producer Larry Hochberg has responded to this as well, saying that MTV would typically try to help out participants on the show by keeping a tow truck driver on call who would take the cars back for more work if they needed it. But it's important to keep in mind here, Dave, that this show wasn't necessarily about improving and extending the life of these cars. It was at its core about presentation, over-the-top ideas brought to life, but only on the surface. Under the hood, some cars are sort of beyond saving no matter how much work you do, but adding some cosmetic stuff for a show doesn't really need to deal with that. Jake Glazer reports that he actually sold his car after a month because of mechanical issues, and Seth Martino says the same, that he got about a month out of the vehicle before the engine totally needed replaced. Derringer, the one with the hot LED lights, had it even worse. His pimped out ride actually burst into flames, and luckily he and his girlfriend escaped before the car was completely destroyed in just minutes. 
Now, if you watch the show, you know that Exhibit would often show up at the contestant's house, but Dave, most of the time, these weren't even the contestant's homes. They were just spaces rented by MTV. All contestants also report having to do multiple takes of their initial reaction to exhibit at the door. Like if they didn't freak out enough or jump up and down, the camera crew would do it over with more excitement. And (laughs) Jake Glazer, who he's actually like been memed for this. Like if you look uh, at... Uh, on YouTube, you can find videos of him just like totally having this over the top reaction. He reports now that it was faked. His real reaction was way more muted and reserved, but the camera crew didn't like that and they made him do it again, which is why he went so hard over the top. Other contestants that spoke to the Huffington Post also reported that their cars took sometimes like six or seven months to be pimped out. And this obviously causes some problems when it's your only car. MTV would also stage the initial cars to make them look worse for TV, such as throwing old cigarette butts in or scratching up the bumper or just like straight up throwing trash into the vehicles. And (laughs) Seth Martino, he doesn't even really like candy, but he said that MTV pushed him to act like he did and put candy wrappers all over his car. So they had an excuse to put the cotton candy machine into his car, which he didn't even really (laughs) want. There it is. Yeah. And so Jake Glazer, he was told by producers that he should break up with his girlfriend to add to the story of being down on his luck with a bad car. Now, it should be said that, number one, the producers deny a lot of these accusations. And number two, many contestants of the shows made out financially by selling their cars for way more than the original car was worth. And it should also be said that within the mixed feelings, most contestants, even the ones mentioned in this segment, have mostly positive memories about the experience, even if now it's more of a joke to them. But also, Dave, you have to remember that reality shows just do this. Like HGTV, for example, they flip houses like crazy and then stages them with tons of furniture that they take after the cameras go off. So this is not new behavior. But Dave, that's just show business. Show business, baby. Hey, life has not been kind to exhibit, by the way. So according to public records, as late as uh, 2010... He owed more than $900,000 in delinquent federal taxes. <laughs> he tried to file for bankruptcy actually twice in 2009 and in 2010, but both filings were dismissed. And the problems, Jay, started after Pimp My Ride was canceled. Okay, so according to this, in 2007, he earned nearly $500,000. In 2008, after the show was canceled, $67,000. <laughs> Uh, free exhibit you know he's done enough for our culture i think we can just call it even right and definitely his fame jay has has changed and waned through the years in 2000 he was actually a playable character in madden the video game <laughs> at, so you could be no exhibit. Way. you could and one of the latest things that he did, which happened in uh, 2016, is he was uh, in the, the show Hawaii Five-0 as the character Jason Decker. So he went from being a playable <laughs> character in Madden to a side character in a show. Did he get to at least say his famous line that he dropped every episode of Pimp My Ride, which was, Yo, dog. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, dog! that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commute. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. 
check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.